it's my pleasure to introduce an old friend, Chris Larvey, who I've known for must be 30 years or so. And Professor Larvey is Professor of Orthopedics and Tropical Surgery, an interesting combination, at the University of Oxford. He's a spine surgeon at Oxford University Hospitals and also an elected council member of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. His consultant career has been dedicated to providing orthopedic services and training in sub-Saharan Africa, and he's lived uh, there for many years himself, uh, building children's orthopedic hospitals, first of all in Malawi, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and helping also to set up COSEXA, that's the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa. And uh, Chris was awarded an OBE by the Queen for his services to orthopedics. So Chris, it's a delight to have you on ICMDA webinars and we really look forward to hearing your presentation. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Well, lovely to, lovely to be with you all this morning. Um, and thank you for the introduction, Peter. Sometimes uh, God calls us to tasks with uh, a great responsibility and a monumental outcome. And uh, it was 30 years ago that the Christian Medical Fellowship in the UK asked me to interview this unknown Kiwi doctor who'd arrived in the UK for the, to become the student secretary. And that was Peter Saunders. And I, uh, every, every year I give thanks to God for, for bringing him into our lives. So uh, lovely to be with you here. Peter and the rest of you. So I'm going to talk for the next half hour uh, about paediatric orthopedics in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, this is a talk with a, 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 a personal slant to it. Um, and my personal interest in children's orthopedics in sub-Saharan Afri Africa started uh, 25 years ago when my wife and I went to the small country of Malawi uh, in 1995. We were struck by its beauty. Um, it was an incredibly poor country, the poorest in the world at the time, 12 million people and no orthopedic surgeons. I just arrived from having been a consultant in London where we had some 500 orthopedic surgeons in one city. This country had no orthopedic surgeons and about 10 US dollars per person per year was spent on health. And I know I'll be, I'm talking to people from all around the world who will know, um, will know and work in health systems where there, there is a severe poverty. So, 12, so 10, 10 US dollars in the UK wouldn't buy one screw of the sort that British orthopedic surgeons use to fix fractures. Um, and wonderfully in the country of Malawi, um, more than half of the population was children. And arriving in Malawi, um, one has to, as the only orthopedic surgeon in the country, one has to make decisions as to what you're going to do because you can't do everything. Um, and where resources are limited, clinical priorities need to be set. And I decided that I'd make children my prior priority. I didn't have a lot of training in children's orthopedics, but uh, over time, with um, working in the country and with lots of visitors, um, I built up at least a bit of an understanding about kids' orthopedics. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is the clinical need. We're going to go through some conditions. In, uh, in, a, in the short time we've got, it's not possible to go over everything in children's orthopedics, but the main conditions that one would see in that part of the world, uh, a word about the numbers, the epidemiology, and then a word about capacity building, manpower, improving organization and improving infrastructures. Firstly, conditions. Um, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and anyone who knows orthopedic surgeons will know they're very, very simple people. And we like to bring things down to simplicity. And essentially, when you're looking at kids orthopedics in this region, there's four major groups of conditions. That's about the highest number that I can remember. So the first one is trauma. And injuries are, injuries are widespread in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And here is a, a road traffic accident. You can see a, a, a dislocation of this little, girl, this little girl's ankle, um, which needed putting, putting uh, reducing and then um, and 
and then and then splinting. I put this up just to remind us that road traffic accidents the world over are the biggest killer of, of um, children and young people. And according to the WHO, in the five to 29 year old age group, that's the five to 29 year old age group. So that's all kids at school, all children at primary and secondary school, um, and pretty much all young adults, the biggest killer the biggest cause of death in that age group is road traffic accidents. It, it eclipses TB, malaria, HIV and COVID all put together. And when looking at global health issues, it's often underestimated road traffic accidents. Um, of course, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we have our own um, uh, local causes of trauma and the rivers around Malawi have the highest concentration of crocodiles of, of any river. And uh, here's a, another young lady who's, uh, who, who managed to pull her arm out of the crocodile's mouth. Incidentally, an, in, an interesting statistic, if, if, it's, if you ever need it, is that uh, approximately half of the people who get their limbs stuck in crocodile's mouths get out. So it's not the end of the world when a crocodile puts its, its, uh, its mighty jaws around you. It's you've got about a 50-50 chance. And it's good to have friends around you with paddles. You can stick them in the crocodile's eyes. So this girl managed to get her, her arm out. And this uh, young boy managed to get his leg out of the mouth of the crocodile. However, didn't get to hospital in time. And you can see his, uh, his, uh, his, his, his starting to develop gangrene. And we treated him with the only option, which was an amputation. Um, another road traffic accident. This young man was knocked over by a car. And for those of you who, uh, who uh, know your anatomy, you'll see immediately that he's fractured the pedicles of his C2 vertebra. And the C2 vertebra has slipped right forwards so that his spinal cord is describing an S shape. And this structure here on the x-rays is his hands because he was holding his head. He'd had the car crash some six weeks earlier and he said to me when he first met me, if I let go of my head, my legs go weak. And I was able to say to him, I know why, because your spinal cord is completely unsupported. And the first spinal operation I did in 1907 in Malawi was wiring this young man's uh, onto his neck. And um, it's an operation that uh, I am actually very proud of with no surgical, no special spinal surgical equipment, but some but some stainless steel wire which we autoclaved and a little bit of bone graft from his pelvis we got this guy's head back on and he did he did extremely well and he contacted me regularly saying would it be okay if i played football now and i i still say to him no that's uh, um that's, that's something um continuing for us many people in malawi most people in malawi cook their food on, on outside fires and uh, children roll into the fires because it's warm and they go to sleep beside them. And here's a one-year-old child who rolled into a fire and burnt the side of her leg. Now all wounds, if you do nothing about them, heal. And this little girl's wound healed and it's almost completely healed, but it's healed with terrible contractures, contracting her knee to a 90 degree deformity and her ankle into dorsiflexion and without treatment this little girl would never walk properly again and the treatment isn't that difficult um simple release of the release of the scars here uh, release of the tight scar tissue and these areas here will granulate up and there she's got a straight leg again and uh, she was able to get out running and walking again would always have a slightly unsightly leg, but a completely normal functioning leg. So trauma, the first big category of, uh, of, of causes of children's orthopedic problems. Second one's congenital deformities. And the commonest is clubfoot. About one in a thousand life births in, uh, in all populations around the world. And here's a, a, a teenage boy with completely untreated club feet. Uh, yet another teenage boy with un untreated club feet and untreated the children walk on the sides of their foot and the more you walk on them 
the more the deformity increases. And so they develop calluses and sores underneath on, on the dorsum of their foot and the sole of their foot, which God planned for them to walk on, is often as soft as a baby's bottom because it hasn't had any wear and tear on it at all. And the treatment for a, a severe club foot like that usually involves a significant amount of surgery to correct the deformity. Here's a child who's had uh, one corrected already and the other one about to be done. And here's a boy who had such pain in his feet when he tried to walk on them that he couldn't do that. So instead he had to walk on his shins and knees just because of untreated club foot. And after surgery to collect his club feet, there he is standing um, in the street. Um, actually, this is a young boy from Ethiopia. There he is standing in the street. And I just want to, uh, as I move through the rest of the slides, for each of you to just imagine the change in this little boy's life from having to crawl around on his knees to be able to stand and walk um, proudly in the street. Other congenital abnormalities, um, and here's a, 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 a relatively rarer one, but still we found a lot, we saw a lot of them in Malawi, and that's congenital pseudarthrosis of the tibia here. So her tibia was formed with essentially a little, a little joint here and, and no stability in her tibia. Um, we treat these, um, we've, or we've started to treat these in Malawi with circular frames where we take out the, the, the false joint here, squeeze the bones together, and then the tibia ends up small, so we elongate the tibia at this end. This young lad, this sweet young lad in the hospital we set up in Malawi had a radio that his family brought into him, and he was very proud uh, because when he touched his radio aerial onto his frame, the reception was significantly improved. Um, the third big category, and it's quite a lump, lumping category, is angular limb deformities. And there's a lot of causes of angular limb deformities. Um, rickets is, is the best known with vitamin D deficiency, but there's other causes. Protein and calorie malnutrition gives us gives the children soft bones, and as they grow, so the bones deform. And there were a lot of angular limb deformities. Here's a um, teenage, young teenage girl with Blount's disease, where the tibia grow, doesn't grow properly on the medial aspect and carries on growing on the lateral aspect. So the bone gets more and more deformed. The surgery to correct them isn't difficult and usually involves an upper tibial osteotomy. And she's, here she is after her operation. Again, a little life completely changed. It was, that, it, was the, it was the change in the life of that girl that actually started me off on, on, a, uh, on, a, on, a, research, on a research trail that uh, we've continued with. And that's, uh, it's, it's actually just looking at quality of life in children with physical impairments. And uh, this is a paper that uh, my colleague Yasmina Lavi wrote, and I particularly loved it because of the title. And that describes the life of a child with a physical impairment, such as we've seen in dignity, they lose their dignity, exclusion, often get often pushed out of society, and sometimes children's societies are the, are the, are the hardest, pain and hunger. You think, why hunger? Just if it's something wrong with your leg, why, why hunger? Well, in a society, in, 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 in village society, and in fact, in most societies in the world, eating is something we do as a group. And if you can't walk properly and you can't get to the group and you can't get to where the, the food is being shared, you end up hungry. And just to show that it's not just girls that get Blount's disease, here's a little boy from, from Uganda with severe Blount's disease. And every year that he grows, the deformity gets worse as the lateral side of his tibia carries on growing. And there he is with his corrected. And uh, I've covered his eyes, but you can see his smile as his life has been just turned around by relatively simple operation. Um, vitamin D deficiency rickets cause all sorts of, causes all sorts of deformities. 
as well as some as bow legs, you can get severe knock knees. And here she is recovering from the operation, having had um, osteotomies to correct her deformities. You get things that you're not really sure what they are. You can't find them in the books. And I had a family, all of whom had 90 degree anterior bowing of their tibias. And they walked around, well, they waddled around um, on the severely deformed tibias. I was unable to find a, a description of this condition, but each of them we managed to treat by doing the kebab operation where we divide their tibia into several chunks and then railroad those bits of bone along a rod. Oops, and there is the boy with his, with his straight leg. So we've considered trauma, we've considered congenital conditions, we've considered acquired angular limb deformities, and lastly, bone and joint infection. And we see infections in Sub-Saharan Africa that you wouldn't see in a lifetime of children's orthopedic surgery in the Western world such as osteomyelitis, and here's a little girl with her whole tibia being pushed out of her, um, pushed out of her leg um, as, a, as a sequestrum. Here's another young girl who's had such severe septic arthritis that it's destroyed her hip joint, and the joint has healed, but it's healed ankylosed with a, a 90 degree fixed flexion deformity. She's just about to undergo surgery, um, the wound, the, the, the infection has in fact all settled down and she was undergoing an osteotomy just to straighten her leg. She'll still end up with a stiff hip, but it'll be a hip where her leg uh, goes down, uh, where, where, the, where the angular deformity in her hip will be corrected and she'll find it much easier to walk. Uh, tuberculous infection, the time I was in Malawi was the time where we had, these, we started the pandemic of, um, of HIV infections and there was no antiretrovirals, certainly in the early days I was there. Was there. And uh, HIV is strongly associated with tuberculous disease. And here's a boy with a kyphosis in his thoracolumbar area with deformity squeezing on his spinal cord. He hadn't yet lost function in his leg, but uh, he didn't have the power to stand up without somebody helping him. Fortunately, TB of the spine does respond really well to uh, chemotherapy, to the anti-TB treatment. So uh, as uh, surgeons, we put away our knives, started the kids on anti-TB treatments, and the vast majority of them regain their strength and, um, and, and can move around. And then with it, we then have to make a decision as to whether for cosmetic or further growth reasons, we, we uh, correct their deformity. And here's an, an interesting infection of a tibia. A patient had a, a, a tibial, open tibial fracture, uh, which became terribly infected. And the fracture, as you can see, can see never healed. But the patient, again, in this case, a 12-year-old girl, um, was so keen to get walking again that she just carried on walking. And uh, her fibula was intact. And her fibula said to the tibia, look, if you're not doing the work, I will. And you can see that her fibula has hypertrophied up until it's about the strong, as strong as her tibia. Really interesting, uh, really inter interesting phenomenon. She still had some wobble in her leg. And so we moved a piece of the tibia, a fibula across and into the tibia. And there she, had, she ended up with a nice straight and strong tibia. So just a little waltz through the, um, the four main areas of, of clinical need in pediatric orthopedics. Now, um, a, a little word about numbers and epidemiology. Um, after a few years in Malawi, um, concentrating on children's corrective surgery, you start to ask yourself, how many kids' orthopedic operations are needed in Malawi? And the answer actually came from the little country of Rwanda. And uh, in uh, 2004, um, after four, uh, sorry, 10 years after the genocide in Rwanda, and after the new uh, enlightened government in Rwanda wanted to, to improve um, health facilities, they were interested in a, a survey of physical impairment and orthopedic conditions in Rwanda. 
and I had the great honor of being involved um, in, in running a big epidemiological survey in Rwanda. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but we looked at all age groups, the causes of musculoskeletal impairment in Rwanda. And uh, just looking at the kids now, we, 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 we found, surprise, surprise, the four big areas of uh, four big uh, groups of children who were in need of orthopedic surgery were firstly those with the sequelae, the followings of, of trauma, those with angular limb deformities, congenital limb deformities, and bone and bone and joint infections. And um, the big survey in Rwanda found about eighty thousand children in Rwanda who needed reconstructive orthopedic surgery. And at that time, Rwanda had about 8 million people. And so it was 80,000 per million, which um, comes down to about 1% of the population of the country was a, was 1% of the population of the country were children in need of orthopedic surgery. And that's a useful figure to, 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 to use in the region. So a country like Malawi with now 18 million people, 1% of that is the number that actually need orthopedic, reconstructive orthopedic surgery. So moving on to capacity building uh, in the region. I, I mentioned that in, in, the, in the mid nineties, I was the, the one orthopedic surgeon in the country. Well, things wonderfully improved. Um, a medical school started in Malawi in 1990 and in the mid 90s there was as yet no graduates so I had a lot of trainees come over from the UK and who worked as the middle grades and two here two people here are now consultants in in the UK but uh, we needed more manpower in children's orthopedics and I'd like to pay credit here to a man called Ed Blair, a Canadian surgeon, Canadian orthopedic surgeon, who'd been in Malawi in the 80s and 90s, who'd started um, a clinical officer training program. He took young men and women, though only, only men in this particular picture, um, who'd done a, a, a simple paramedic course after leaving school and became, and became medical assistants and he took these, these young people and gave them an 18-month training in practical orthopedics. And they, they were immensely helpful. And we restarted their course and trained over 100 of these paramedic orthopedic clinical officers. No, they couldn't do spinal surgery or pelvic reconstructions, but they could manage 85 to 90% of, of all the conditions that we've looked at. Uh, also, in, in, in terms of improving manpower, I was very fortunate to be working in Malawi at the turn of the century. And we, as, as surgeons, were, very sociable, were a very sociable group. And all the surgeons from this swathe of green countries used to meet every year, the first week in December, for a, well, we called it a scientific meeting. It was mainly social and, and catching up with each other. And... Uh, at the, the end of last century, there was, an, there was a, a, a shared understanding that we needed more surgical training in this region. And so, um, as I said, it was a great honor to be part of a group that set up the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa. A zebra's head to uh, denote the region and a couple of big knives to, to denote what we were interested in. And it's, um, it's a it's a college that has gone that has gone from strength from strength to strength. It's now got 15 countries involved, and we've got more than a thousand trainees. Um, and here's just one early course run by that the College of Surgery. Um, uh, this was actually for theatre nurses uh, to, uh, to 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 encourage training, expertise, and understanding of orthopedic conditions in theatre nurses. A little bit about manpower, a little bit about organization to improve children's orthopedic services in Malawi. Um, I've shown you pictures of club feet and 
what, how we how we treated delayed presenting club feet in teenagers. Around the turn of the century, however, a new technique, which was which was developed in the U.S., called the Ponsetti technique, began to take began to, to uh, um, become popular throughout the world, and it's a method of manipulation of the club foot that is better than anything that we'd ever known before. And it's a method of manipulation of the newborn's or young child's club foot that gets 80, 90% good results um, without any significant major surgery. And the wonderful thing is that these kids don't actually need to come to a center or a surgical center. They can actually be dealt with in a, in, in a local clinic. And so with the help of the Ministry of Health and the uh, Physiotherapy Association of Malawi, we set up 25 club foot clinics in all of the health districts so that everybody, all children born with club foot had, had the, had the uh, potentiality of being treated locally where they are, where they were. And there's five little boys, all with bilateral club feet. On to, on to infrastructure. One of the problems with children's orthopedic, children's elective orthopedic surgery is that however important it may be, it's never very urgent. And we, we who do elective surgery in any country of the world uh, always have the problem that the urgent kicks out the important. And road traffic accidents and trauma always uh, clash with elective surgery. And it's the same in, the same in a well-funded a well-funded health service just like the UK. Trauma always causes cancellation of, of elective operations. And we had several surgeons interested in children's orthopedics by, this, by uh, the, the turn of the century in Malawi, um, but it was difficult to do the cases because the big government hospitals were so full of trauma and emergency cases. And so a colleague and I had a dream of building a centre where children's elective orthopaedic surgery was was what was what the hospital was all about, and uh, got a local architect to draw up a design for us, and having raised the money, built the hospital, and there it was open, um, in uh, just over two years from idea to, uh, to, to 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 opening, something that could actually never never happen in the UK. And the hospital is now run by the, um, the, the US Christian charity Cure International. We'll, see, we'll hear a little bit more about them in, later on. So we set up in 20, 2002 the, the Children's Orthopaedic Hospital and Research Center. Upstairs here, we had um, offices where we looked at uh, we, 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 our research rooms where we looked at questions about children's um, orthopedic problems. What was the cause of them and what would be what's the best treat, what would best treatment for them? And several um, quite important studies came out of that hospital, particularly in the area of club foot and infection. And this hospital is founded on four pillars. Firstly, giving the best clinical care we could for the patients. Secondly, training. By 2002, there were some young Malawian doctors who were interested in, in orthopedic surgery. There were also young trainees from neighboring countries, and we were able to take these, uh, these staff on as, as middle grades and train them. Thirdly, research, which I've already mentioned, as well as giving the best care for the patients, really, really trying to understand the pathology and the best ways of treating it. So thirdly, research, and fourth, showing God's love to the children. And um, I particularly love uh, showing this slide to, uh, to, 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 to audience that aren't Christians and say that uh, it, it, in our society today in the UK, it's sometimes difficult to say we're, we're building a hospital to show God's love to the children. However, in starting this hospital, before we started it, I had a, a cup of tea with the Minister of Health and we talked over the possibilities of building this hospital. And his last words to me were, this hospital has to be built to be built 
these kids need to know that God loves them. And a really big part of this hospital took place in this room here, which is the hospital chapel. Uh, every morning there were prayers. There were prayers before every operation and every week there was a service for all hospital staff include, and, and mothers were invited. Moving on, <clears throat> Peter mentioned that uh, I've had the honour to be involved in building several orthopedic hospitals and this is the, the latest one in, in Zimbabwe. Um, the Minister of Health in Zimbabwe, the Ministry of Health in Zimbabwe was very supportive of of working together with a group of us who'd formed a charity for children's orthopedic surgery to build a kids orthopedic hospital in Zimbabwe. And uh, Zimbabwe actually has a lot of built, a lot of um, infrastructure. It's just fallen into disrepair. And this was an old isolation hospital in Bulawayo. You can see that it was once beautiful, but it had an enormous fire which had melted all the glass, burnt all the woodwork, and the roof was falling in. And uh, that hospital was given to our group and we formed a public-private partnership with the Ministry of Health in that we would renovate the hospital and then work with the Ministry of Health in, in, in setting up and, and, and running a children's orthopaedic hospital. And if anyone is interested in running a children's orthopaedic hospital, um, in setting one up, I'll just, give, I'll just give you instructions on how to do it. There's only 10 simple instructions. Firstly, establish the need. Well, that's not difficult with the epidemiological work we've done. There's, a, there's, there's a, a big need in most low and middle income countries. Secondly, meet the Minister of Health. This is something that has to be done in conjunction with the Ministry of Health. Thirdly, find the money, work out what it's gonna cost and, um, and, 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 and find the funds. Fourthly, form a team and the team has to have has to have local leadership it's there's no point starting unless there's a team of uh, of, of of nationals who really want to drive this forward um, look at how you're going to run the hospital there's lots of economic models you could use but you've got to work out how you how it's actually going to run it's uh, much easier to build something than it is to keep it running find some land um, I learnt um, from experience in Malawi, we, we, we bought a piece of land or rather we leased a piece of land on a, on a long lease. But actually land in the region isn't difficult. And in subsequent hospitals I've been involved in, in, in building, the Ministry of Health has found us pieces of land. Design the hospital and you need a designer or an architect who understands the local um, um, the local economy and the and the way buildings work in 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 in, in the particular country that you're in and the designs are, are very different for the way we design things in the uk in the uk there's a plentiful supply of electricity so all our toilets for example are indoors you don't waste a window on a on a, on a toilet they can stick them under the stairs and rounding corners in a country where the electricity may fail at any moment you actually want all the toilets on one wall against the prevailing wind for obvious reasons and you do want a window in your toilet um, building and building and equipment we've always tried to boost the local economy by having local builders do the building and um, equipment is relatively easy to find if you if you look in the right places um, uh, in the uk there's always private hospitals that are um, that are that, that are moving and you can buy the buy equipment usually very reasonable prices from them staff are, are are important in setting up the hospitals in in malawi zambia and and, and zimbabwe we have uh, had all local staff apart from the um the the, the senior surgical staff who, where we brought expatriates in just for starting things off and as the hospitals developed, so we've been, been able to move over to national staff. And lastly, just get, get started. But don't start with a bang. Start very, very slowly. Do simple operations first. Simple operations that can't go wrong. Do simple things like tinotomies, opening abscesses, removing little bits of dead bone until your systems are work, work well. 
once your systems work well, you can start slowly move, moving on to more difficult operations. Um, my advice is don't start spine surgery till your hospital's been going for at least three years. Um, a little pour through some of the pictures of the Zimbabwe hospital. Um, there's the building that I showed you, and this is the piece of land that the Ministry of Health gave us to look at. We designed, got a local architecture designer, beautiful three operating theatre building here. And the great thing about Google Earth is you can go back and look at things later. Um, so 2018 May, there's the building I showed you with the burnt off roof. roof. We've taken some debris away by June. By July, we dug the foundations for the theatre block. Uh, nothing much happened in August, except we took the rest of the roof off here. In, in January 2019, the walls of the theatre were coming up and a new roof was on this, on this block. That's February. And uh, we threw a drone into the air to, uh, to, to inspect our new roof. And there's the operating theatre on its way up. Another close-up picture. And there's the theatre with its roof on. And there it was in July 2020, June 2021, when we opened this, uh, this, yeah, this, this year. And like all hospitals in the world, we've got a little COVID tent here. We're hoping that we'll be able to take it down soon. So last picture, there's the hospital before and there's the hospital afterwards. And um, the beauty of the building has been maintained. And I want to just here throw out an enormous thanks to Cure, uh, Cure International, who've taken over the running of this hospital. Cure International, an amazing Christian organization that shows God's love to children in need throughout the world, but particularly in Africa. They're now running the hospital in Malawi and they're running the hospital in, in Bulawayo. There's the there's our Noah's Ark picture. And there's another picture of Adam and Eve in the, in the kids' ward. The hospital, as I say, the hospital opened in uh, July this year. And at just as we opened, um, the government said, no, no more than seven people can meet in a room. So here's my colleague, um, uh, Colin Masasanuri, the senior surgeon in the hospital, welcoming all the new employees. And the first thing he said is go into the hospital, get a chair and put it in the car park. So um, the government wouldn't let us have more than seven people in the room, but that was okay. We, they were, had their induction in the car park. Last reminder of that uh, uh, beautiful hospital. And thank you for listening. But thank you mainly to the hundreds of friends and colleagues over the last 25 years who've walked the journey of improving kids orthopedic surgery in the region thank you thank you so so much chris we've been if you if you joined us during the presentation we've been listening to professor chris larby giving us a really uh, outstanding overview of pediatric orthopedics in sub-saharan africa clinical needs and capacity building. And you've heard a talk which has started right at ground level with the individual cases and the causes and uh, seen how individuals can be helped, but then looking back at the much bigger picture of how the need can be met. One of my heroes, Chris, is Stanley Brown, the, the leprosy surgeon who said that you can't meet the need, but you can show how the need can be met. I, I love that, and uh, that, in many ways, is what is what you have done um, in a few short years in these countries. But can I ask about the overall need in sub-Saharan Africa? You've described uh, what what has happened really to transform Malawi and, and now Zimbabwe. How much? How are the other countries doing in terms of managing pediatric orthopedic problems? Those stats from Rwanda were really quite overwhelming. You know, one percent of the whole population with with um, with problems needing orthopedic correction. How much more is still to be done? Well, the 
the, the stats are, are, I'm afraid, a little bit depressing. And, I, and I'm quoting statistics from um, um, colleagues in the University of Cape Town who've looked at the continent as a whole and looked at surgery as a whole. And the, the estimates are that uh, less than 10% of the surgery that needs doing is actually getting done. So the, the, there is a big task ahead. However, um, there's, there's lots of exciting things that are happening. And to, in my mind, the biggest is, um, is COSEXA, um, this training, the training organization that's now been going for just over, just over 20 years. And one of the things that COSEXA did was uh, in, in the region said, was, said that it looked at surgical training and it saw that some surgical training was happening in big teaching hospitals, but it also looked at non-teaching hospitals in, and in particular really well-run mission hospitals and said actually these can be used for training and so Casexa set up a, a, a platform for, for, for using other, other well-run and well-organized hospitals and so has more than doubled the amount of surgical training in the region and another really, really exciting statistic from COSEXA is that 90% of the trainees stay in the country where they were where they were born and trained. So yes, there's a big work ahead, but uh, it's it's exciting that 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 the, the, the capacity is increasing. Well, that's that 90% staying is a great statistic because we, we hear often of people uh, uh, being drawn by the brain drain to the West. And, and I think I remember you talking about when you first arrived in Malawi, you found that there were people who had been trained in orthopedic surgery in Malawi, but for various reasons, they were either not there or not working in orthopedics or, or medicine. But what, what are your thoughts about the brain drain and, and the best way of, of combating it? What, what are the lessons that we've learned through COSEXA in terms of really encouraging people to get stuck in uh, where they've been trained? Peter, that's a really big question. I, I just, I'd, li I'd like to say that, that during my talk, my phone flashed and it was a message to say that 800 new nurses have been recruited from outside of the UK and were coming in. So that's 800 nurses who are being taken away from place, places that were probably needed more than the UK. So um, let me say about the brain drain. Firstly, uh, I'm, I'm a great supporter of freedom of movement. Um, you, you can stop the brain drain by totalitarian methods, but uh, I, I don't. I wouldn't agree with them. No, people should be able to move to move uh, move freely. So, how do you stop the brain drain? Well, I believe you can you can reduce the brain brain drain by making places of work attractive to work in, mm -hmm. and in the hospitals that um, I've had had the honour of setting up and and cures running. Uh, they are exciting places to work in. There's a great team, there's great rewards and satisfaction in the work. And the salaries, if not, if not enormous, are, 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 are certainly livable on. And if people can have a living salary and a place where they can work, which they can, where they can really enjoy and get, really enjoy the work and be rewarded by the work and get it done, I think people stay. And that's, that's what we're finding. A question for here from Alison Herbert. She says, we hear a lot about the financial catastrophic cost of surgery for patients in lower, middle, lower and middle income countries. Does, does this affect the type of surgery that is done, the, the choices people are making? And uh, in, your own, in your own experience, what, what have been the best ways of, of making sure that, that people, even from very poor backgrounds, can get really top class treatment? Um, a great question, Alison. And, you know, money, money is important because things do, do cost a lot. Uh, some, some, some types of surgery cost a lot. Um, I, we've, we've really tried to concentrate on low cost, high outcome procedures. And, um, as more funds come in, you can do more and more detailed and costly, costly procedures. But um, 
big and important surgery is is costly and that's you, you, you can't really escape that however you, what you, what you can do is make sure that uh, the, the the funds that you've got go as far as you can by doing the, the most cost effective procedures uh, i'll come back to another question from allison too because uh you've partially answered this you talked about the ponsetti method for managing club foot and treating it conservatively without requiring surgery that that lovely picture of the women waiting with their kids in in casts and so on so she's uh, just asking you know do you teach the ponsetti method well you you do but maybe a little bit about how you uh train clinical officers and others to be able to recognize and treat milder cases of club foot so that you're only getting the serious ones to your tertiary referral center how do you set up a um, system like that in a country? Well, um, I'd like to I'd like to throw up um, an arrow out here to an organisation called Global Club Foot Initiative, and I'll, I'll put that website on 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 the email that's going out. Global Club Foot Initiative uh, works in many low and middle income countries and has set up training programmes for um, surgeons physiotherapists and, and other health health professionals um, in in managing the Ponsetti in, in doing the Ponsetti method and the Ponsetti method is relatively easy to to administer and um, and, and gets really good results in, in 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 children under the age of one um, I'd like to say we we with some help from the British government we set up a a program of training for clubfoot called Africa Clubfoot Training (ACT) um, with colleagues from 15 different countries in Africa, and we devised a, um, a short but very well uh, um, described um, four-day training program with basic clubfoot treatment and advanced clubfoot treatment, and uh, that's now um, in operation in several countries in um, in in Africa. And has and has moved also to South America and to some, some parts of of, um, of Southeast Asia, and most uh, um, most heartwarming of all to me as a, an Englishman working in the NHS, the NHS has asked if they can uh, have our Africa Clubfoot training program. So we now we now deliver the courses here in the UK, but we ask people to pay for them, and the funding goes to help uh, kids who can't pay. Excellent. The club foot raises a, a wider question too. As you say, 80, 80 to 90% of them can be treated conservatively and won't need surgery. Of, of the pediatrics, orthopedic surgical needs you outlined in the other areas as well, how much of, of uh, the surgery would not be required if there were the right infrastructural systems for early recognition of problems. I, I mean, I was, I, my experience in pediatric orthopedics is very limited, but I was struck working in Kenya about how much uh, bone and joint damage there was from osteomyelitis that uh, had it been picked up earlier, wouldn't have been necessarily coming to the hospital. But how much orthopedic uh, pediatrics it could be circumvented if there were better systems in place? Um, I'll start off with trauma. If we could prevent half of the road traffic accidents, uh, we, would, um, we, would, we, would, we would halve the work of orthopedics in, in the country. So uh, uh, probably the, you know, if I had, if, I, if you gave me one wish, it would be um, to work with, with, with politicians and planners to, uh, to do Things that would to put in measures that would reduce reduce road traffic accidents. In, in terms of in terms of trauma, in terms of other orthopedic conditions, you're absolutely right, Peter. Um, if addressed earlier, they're much much easier to treat. So early recognition, and early diagnosis, and early referral are really important. Though they're they're, they're not panaceas because early diagnosis and early referral could easily overload a system. So the system has to increase in, in, uh, in, in proportion to the earlier diagnosis, but virtually every condition 
osteomyelitis, bone and joint infection, club foot, um, all the angular limb deformities. The, the more years you leave it, the harder it is to treat. Yeah. Another question, anonymous question here. Great talk, many thanks. Uh, I wonder if you've had to extend your surgical skills into other areas of surgery simply because of the need, urgency and lack of other surgeons and so on. And, and th this is a big question I think that surgeons ask. Do I become you know, a super specialist like Professor Larvey who says, right, my thing's going to be pediatric surgery or do you look for a more general route or are there places for, for both? So particularly for the, the budding surgeons listening today. Yeah, I think, there's, I think there are places for both. Um, there's, there's, there's isolated hospital, isolated district and mission hospitals where you've really got to turn your hand to everything. And particularly, you have to be able to do cesarean sections. And then there's, um, there's the more, more specialized conditions that, that will usually be treated in a, in a hospital, such as on the ones I've set up. Um, where you can concentrate on a particular area. Um, I think the question said, what, what have I done? Well, I, I've done a lot of cesarean sections. In the, in the early days of traveling around the small district hospitals in Malawi, you'd visit a, a remote district hospital and start to do a club foot operation. And then a lady would need a C-section. And uh, as the visiting surgeon, I was usually asked to do it. So, um, um, I think if you are going to work in remote areas, you should uh, be sure that either you can do them or there is someone there who can do them. There's a question here from John Terry, who's an orthopedic surgeon in Rwanda. And uh, he's, he says, great to hear that you were involved in that survey on pediatric orthopedic burden in the country. Uh, not much has been done on this, he said. So any advice or assistance. And uh, Chris, I, I just wanted to pick up the fact that you went out there as a, as a surgeon, really focused for, focusing very much on individual needs and what you can do, but you've got into much more developing uh, whole national systems really with referral from village level all the way through. So could, what any lessons you've learned from your experience about how to transform uh, a country's management of orthopedic problems? Um, yeah, I think I went, I, I, I've matured in my thinking and I went as quite a naive um, orthopedic surgeon thinking, you know, go somewhere where there's a need and the patient in front of you, you consider how you can treat them. And, uh, and that's still something that's worth doing. But um, I was, I, I was encouraged to take a step back and say, okay, this is how you could treat that patient. How many of them are there in the country? How many people are suffering from that condition? And how can they all be treated? And, um, and slowly with a lot of help and guidance from colleagues, I started to take a public health approach really, which was saying, how big is the problem? What are the best ways we can deal with it? And uh, what is the best system? So um, I stepped back from being a, a hands-on, well, from being a hands-on orthopedic surgeon all the time and, uh, and got involved in, in, in systems thinking. And yeah, that's a, that's a direction I've taken. And I, and I actually find it just as challenging or even more challenging, challenging than surgery. And to, and in answer to the, the question about um, um, Rwanda, I, I think I can't answer that because I'm I'm not I'm not in Ru I'm not in Rwanda, but um, um, it, it, it's something for the Ministry of Health and the and the, uh, the the surgical planners in the country to look at, really. Yeah. Just a, a few quick questions. Tim Chusink is a, a surgeon working in, in uh, East Africa. Any good reference texts for pediatric orthopedic surgery for those in resource challenge settings? Maybe that's something for the email that will go out tomorrow, but uh, in, any quick response to that? I don't know of any specific tests for, res for resource poor settings. There's some good texts for, for, ch for children's orthopedic surgery generally. 
perhaps is the challenge that there ought to be one for um, resource challenged areas. Certainly the CURE organization has got immense expertise in, um, in doing the best with, um, with, uh, with, with limited expense. And uh, perhaps it's something we should put to them to get that, to get such a group together. Now your, your colleague, uh, David Drake, pediatric surgeon in London is, is saying, could you mention anesthetic personnel and training as well? So how, how have you had to develop that to make all this possible? I haven't done, I haven't done much to develop that. Um, the, in, in Malawi, um, similar to the orthopedic clinical officers training, there was an anesthetic clinical officers training that was set up by a, an enlightened anesthetist called Paul Fenton, probably 20, 30 years ago. And uh, the anesthetic clinical, anesthetic clinical officers delivered the vast majority of, an, majority of anesthetic that uh, I, I operated with. And they were excellent, um, excellent practitioners. Um, following on from COSEXA, the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa, there is now the College of Anesthesia of East Central and Southern Africa. It's um, 20 years behind the College of Surgeons, but it's, um, it's got going and it started to do its own training and its own exams. And I think we're gonna see great things from it um, in, the, in the decades ahead. But that's interesting. Most most surgery you were doing, uh, the anaesthetics could be managed by people who were um, not not fully fully qualified doctors, but clinical officers trained in anaesthetics. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, Irfan and, um, Anwar, who's a orthopedic surgeon from Pakistan uh, uh, and a spinal surgeon, is as asking spinal deformity surgeries. Were you? Uh, doing those at the Cure Hospital in Malawi, and you said it took. Don't attempt it for three years, but were, were you doing it eventually there? Yeah, we did. We did start doing them, um, and they've now stopped doing them. They are incredibly expensive and incredibly risky, and it. Um, so, say so, uh, currently, then they're not being done there, and they're certainly not being done in. Uh, the hospital we set up in Zimbabwe. Um, the development of spinal surgery is something that I am really interested in, and I, it's it's something that we will we we will have to work with work work on in the future. It's resource intensive. Um, usually requires an in intensive care unit afterwards, and the implants are, are also expensive. So. Um, Ask me again in a few years. Okay, uh, Laurie, we're we're having to we're running out of time here, but just a, a couple more quick ones. I'm sure people won't mind. Uh, Laurie Sanders is saying I'm in an organisation which provides scholarships to train national surgeons in Africa. We're working on coming alongside mission hospitals to increase capacity of mission hospitals to train more through helping with education, human resources, governance, fundraising, infrastructure, supplies, logistics, and so on. What uh, advice would you give about the key points we should be considering? I'm uh, guessing the organization might be AMH, Africa Mission Healthcare, but I, I might be incorrect about that. But I know, I know a, a growing number of missions are now looking at this thing you were talking about, about upping the capacity of mission hospitals to do training. Uh, any, any pointers? Again, I that's think a lecture in itself. That, that's, that's a lecture in itself, yes, Laurie. Laurie. I think I'd approach the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, which is a, a great group, and, and which actually now has very close links for its exams and accreditation with COSEXA. Or you can, or you can email me, Laurie, as well, and we can take that further. Yes, I've been impressed at how well PACS graduates have done in the COSEXA exams, and it's great to see that partnership operating now. Just one final question, Chris, and, and uh, Gillian Cottrell, I'm sure, is speaking for many as a medical student wanting to do uh, an ortho pediatric orthopedic elective placement, uh, which she's already organized. But in terms of the future, uh, in, in two or three years' time, 
how would someone with those interests go about getting an elective placement in the in the sort of hospitals that you're speaking about? Should they approach Cure or or what? I I would I would approach Cure. Yes, that's that's probably your best bet. For, for, and for how important thing. has it been um, to? I, I mean, I know you've recruited a lot of people to do this work and have replaced yourself with others doing it. How important has it been in that to engage young orthopedic surgeons while they're still training? Um, I think it's extremely important um, to engage them while they're still training. Um, they're really interested while they're still training. One's got to remember that your training period is your training period. And so, it's, it's, you know, training has got to be your highest priority rather than service, uh, service delivery. But it is possible to have periods out there working under um, well-trained surgeons who will teach you techniques. And, and so I, I would, I think the best thing, if you're interested in, in a career in this, kind of, in this kind of work, is to have a period or periods during your training where you get involved in it. I'm really sorry, we've run out of time now and uh, we, could, we could go on uh, much longer, I'm sure, but uh, we're so grateful to you, Chris, for your time, your expertise, your experience, and, and so generously sharing it today. And I'm sure it will have inspired many to walk in the same direction and certainly informed everyone uh, to, to pray much more about this vital work. So uh, thanks again to to Professor Lavi, and thank you to all of you for joining us today on ICMDA webinars. Have a very Merry Christmas and New Year as we celebrate our Lord's coming, and we look forward to connecting with you again in 2022. God bless you. <laughs>